Why, hello there, and welcome to Chapter 5 of The Book Report with Noah Linsk. This is Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. And for this episode, we're doing things a little differently. For starters, we won't be covering one novel or writer in particular, but instead focusing on the earliest examples of science fiction literature leading up to the turn of the 20th century. Part 1 will be a crossover segment from Science Factual episode 62 with guest human Tim James, where we talk about sci-fi leading up to the year 1919, so definitely check that episode out for more than just the literature angle. That segment will be followed by some double trouble, as Noah Linsk and Cassie Rood deliver back-to-back -back dives into Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and then Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Speaking of that dynamic duo, Noah and Cassie, they're primed to take the reins of the book report, so moving forward you'll hear less of me and more of them, along with a string of guests. Not to fret though, you'll still get all the facts and background information behind important sci-fi literature along with the witty banter you've come to know and love. Plus, you can always visit me over at Science Factual if you do ever end up missing me. I'm but a Spotify link away. It's been my distinct and sincere pleasure to work on this project with Noah initially and more recently with Cassie. Working with nerds on nerdy things is near and dear to my heart, and these two are as nerdy as they come. My chapter of the book report may be over, but the story shall never end, thanks to Noah and Cassie. Alright, now that we've gotten the heartfelt stuff out of the way, let's get into some sci-fi history before we get into the synopsis segments. genre of science fiction is diverse, living under the umbrella of speculative fiction along with fantasy fiction, horror fiction, and alternative history works, and its exact definition remains a contested question among both scholars and nerds alike. This lack of consensus is reflected in debates about the genre's history, particularly over determining its exact origins. There are two broad camps of thought. The first identifies the genre's roots in early fantastical works such as the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, with the earliest cuneiform text versions emerging between 2150 and 2000 BCE. Now, there are a number of ancient or early modern texts, including a great many epics and poems that contained fantastical or science fictional elements, yet were written before the emergence of science fiction as a distinct genre. These texts often include elements such as a fantastical voyage to the moon or the use of imagined advanced technology. Although fantastical and science fiction-like elements and imagery exist in stories such as Ovid's Metamorphosis, the Old English epic heroic poem Beowulf, and the Middle German epic poem Nibelugenlied, their relative lack of references to science or technology puts them closer to fantasy rather than science fiction, an important distinction to make because a second approach argues that science fiction only became possible sometime between the 17th and early 19th centuries following the scientific revolution and major discoveries in astronomy, physics, and mathematics. Science fiction developed and boomed in the 20th century as the deep integration of science and inventions into daily life encouraged a greater interest in literature that explores the relationship between technology, society, and the individual. Scholar Robert Scholes called the history of science fiction, quote, the history of humanity's changing attitudes towards space and time, the history of our growing understanding of the universe, and the position of our species in that universe. In recent decades, the genre has diversified and become firmly established as a major influence on global culture and thought. So, starting things off, you may have an idea of some more prominent pieces that help define the genre, like Mary Wollstonecroft's Shelley's Frankenstein, which is often credited as being the first true science fiction novel, and other titles like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. 
But oddly enough, Francois-Marie Arouette, aka Voltaire, and before I go any further, my apologies to any French listeners out there, uh, but yes, I do mean French philosopher Voltaire, who could be considered one of the first science fiction writers thanks to a piece he wrote in 1752 called Micromegas, in which an alien from Saturn and an alien from a star near Sirius come to Earth, where they are enormous in size. They explore the Earth and have trouble finding life forms because, to them, a whale is the size of a flea. They eventually realize in one part that a tiny speck of wood on the ground is actually a ship and it's full of living things, at which point they make contact, so really it's like a first contact story. However, there are other direct examples of science fiction pieces that date back as early as 1516. A quick reading list of these early stories includes work of varying canonicity, such as Thomas More's Utopia from 1516, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis from 1627, Johannes Kepler's Somnium from 1634, Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World from 1666, Hail Satan, Henry Neville's The Island of Pines from 1688, and Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels from 1726. These pieces have a bit more of an ambiguous connection with science fiction as opposed to a hard science fiction like something from Asimov, so a lens of interpretation would benefit a reader looking to make those less overt connections. Though obscure today, Francis Godwin's The Man in the Moon, that's M-O-O-N-E, captivated 17th century readers with its tale of a Spaniard who travels in a ship powered by geese. He flies through space, which for the first time in literature is depicted as weightless, then spends time with the denizens of a lunar civilization, only to leave for an almost equally exotic and technologically marvelous land called China. The story's blend of natural philosophy, travel narrative, and the utopian and picaresque genres delighted English and European audiences. It also influenced literary stars for centuries. The French author Savignen de Cyrano de Bergerac poked fun at the book in his satirical 1657 novel The Other World. Edgar Allan Poe referenced the novel in his 1835 story The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall. And H.G. Wells' 1901 novel The First Men in the Moon was directly inspired by Godwin. Godwin, Cavendish, and their contemporaries are important for generating a freely speculative space of imagination, which is still science fiction's role today. In constructing worlds, or birthing paper bodies as Cavendish called them, the author's acts of envisioning possible futures had a tangible impact on how reality actually took shape. What the scientific revolution did, writes the British historian Keith Thomas in the incredibly long titled Religion and the Decline of Magic, Studies in Popular Belief in 16th and 17th Century England, was to buttress up the old rationalist attitude with a more stable intellectual foundation. That is, science fiction wasn't always derivative of scientific explanations themselves. Even before science had fully defined itself, literature offered a means for thinking about science. The capacity to envision alternative social arrangements, in particular, makes science fiction arguably the literary genre with the most revolutionary potential. And within that potential lie fantastical stories and their authors waiting to be unleashed on the unsuspecting masses, much like the technological revolution that was unfolding as the stories we regard as classics began to take shape and mold the imagination of the world. Most notably, we have the aforementioned Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which, being written in 1818, deals with the burgeoning ubiquity of electricity, the study of anatomy and physiology, and how the global scale was becoming much smaller amid industrialization and trade advancements. The story details the hubris of a young scientist who experiments in a laboratory to bring to life a sapient creature of his own design. Though Frankenstein is infused with elements of the gothic novel and the romantic movement, Brian Aldiss has argued for regarding it as the first true science fiction story. In contrast to previous stories with fantastical elements resembling those of later science fiction, Aldiss states the central character makes a deliberate decision and turns to modern experiments in the laboratory to achieve fantastic results. The novel has had a considerable influence on literature and on pop culture, and has spawned a complete genre of horror stories, films, and plays. But you're going to get a big old rundown from Cassie and Noah in just a minute, so I'll save all the juicy details for that segment. Other important works of science fiction from the 19th century include The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, Journey of the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall by Edgar Allan Poe, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, Erevan by Samuel Butler, 
The Last Man by Mary Shelley, The Coming Race by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, The Case of Summerfield by William Henry Rhodes, The Land of the Changing Sun by William N. Harbin, The Brick Moon by Edward Everett Hale, The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley, A Tale of Negative Gravity by Frank R. Stockton, The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells making another appearance on the list, and The Horla by Guy de Maupassant. Now, that's not a definitive list or all of the science fiction that was written in the 19th century, but it's definitely a good start. Coming up next, we're doubling down with Cassie and Noah. First up, we have Cassie piecing together Mary Shelley's genre-defining novel Frankenstein, followed by Noah's probe into Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Enjoy! Yes, one second, two seconds, three seconds. I guess we're live. We're live then. Well, do we want people to know who I am? Yeah, that's interesting. So we're joined today by Cassie Rude. Hi. Uh, boy, I don't know. Sorry. Um, I'm your girlfriend. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're joined today by my girlfriend, Cassie Rude, who is not a Portland comedian. Um, today, regrettably, Reese was ill with terminal cancer. I'm sure he'll be better by the time this is posted. Get well soon, Reese. So anyway, Reese was not able to be here today. Cassie is filling in for Reese, but also Cassie was going to do a Frankenstein episode anyway, so it actually works out. I mean, it's not optimal in the sense that Reese is sick. Mm-hmm, True. We know how devoted he is to both the book report and science factual, so not even cancer is going to stop him at this. And when you see Reese Hendrick, who is currently dying of an infected stab wound in his belly, but will be fine when you see him, give him a high five and say good work on all the effort that you put in a science factual on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. because Reese puts in a lot of work on this show. So thank you, Reese. Yeah, thank you, Reese. And um, well done on winning that fight against that giant bear. And um, I love I will say that um, I'm very happy to be on the show and um, Reese get, get to feeling better soon. And I am uh, sort of a uh, half size uh, stand in for Reese. Um, <laughs> roughly, roughly 50% of a Reese. Uh, maybe a quarter. Hard to say. Yeah, uh, big, big fella. Tall man. But anyway, um, so I think we can dive right into the plot summary for uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley if you're. Amenable to that, Mr. Linsk? Yes. All right, cool. At its heart, Frankenstein is a book about two men chasing each other around the North Pole. Allow me to explain. Our framing device is an explorer named Walton, who is set on finding the Northwest Passage. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. It's cold. There's cannibalism when ship supplies run low. Just, it's a bad idea. Don't do it. Walton is writing to his sister in London as he travels north, lamenting that he doesn't have a friend of his class and standing among the crew, which is... I hate it when commoners... (laughs) They're uncouth. (laughs) They don't know Latin. Nope. You know? They wander into the first class part of the plane and cause problems. It's It's, it's a struggle. It's frankly, you know, it's just the wrong sorts of people. We all, anyway. Exactly. It's an extremely relatable thing. Anyway, so during a storm, they see what seems to be men on uh, sledges out on the ice pulled by dogs, but they lose track in the chaos. Come morning, they find a very sick man uh, out on a glacier, and they bring him aboard and proceed to nurse him back to health. Walton immediately looks at this stranger and goes, friend, Um, as you do. Um, This new friend is Dr. Victor Frankenstein, and he's not doing great. He proceeds to tell Walton a horrifying story, noticing the spark of interest our framing device protagonist has in science to try and deter him from further exploration. Frank- don't go up there, Walton. Don't, don't Take it from your buddy Frankenstein. Yeah, I know you just met me, but like, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Don't worry about it, why? Yeah, well, and this is the why of it. He, Frankenstein is about to explain to Walton, 
here's why you shouldn't be interested in science whatsoever. This is a cautionary tale. Um, science is bad, after all. For Victor Frankenstein, science is very bad. Oh. It's valid, yeah, from coming from him. No, I, that's, yeah, okay. And boy, howdy, after you hear this, this uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Frankenstein, the scientist, not the monster, but, you know, I think it's all right if you mix them up. I think that Shelley would have liked that, honestly, uh, for dramatic irony reasons. Uh, Frankenstein grows up with loving parents, a Swiss background, a hot adopted sister who, uh, at one point, he gets engaged to, as you do, and a fascination with old alchemists and their teachings. This, plus the death of his mother in his youth, leads him to fixate on ways to stop death slash revive the dead. Also, he sees lightning strike a tree and is uh, galvanized, so to speak. That'll come into play later. Victor then proceeds to head to Ingolstadt to study natural philosophy and chemistry and figure out how to revive the dead. His professors and classmates think this is very silly. They laugh at him, understandably. Yeah, exactly like that. Um, <laughs> but Victor isn't deterred. He's going to revive something. Dang it. And so he does, working in the dead of night, grave robbing, visiting charnel houses, and collecting spare parts of humans wherever he can get them. You know, files week. Uh, what I love about this book is it's so relatable. Um, yeah, when you're, like, trying to get dead body parts. They call it dead week for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, where you're like, all I need is, like, a right... Thigh? A like, a, the part of the leg, like, the whole, not just the thigh or the femur, but the whole part of the leg with all of it together. A, a hind leg. <laughs> all I need is a hind leg. <laughs> and I'll have a whole person... <laughs> and my freezer is stuffed to bursting. You probably keep them refrigerated, not frozen. I, I don't know what the refrigeration yeah. practices would have been. Mm, yeah, not great at that time. Not great. He's definitely, he's got to get them while they're pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why he's going to Charnel houses. Oh, uh, yes, that does make sense. Yeah. He's looking for fresh like sushi. I am so sorry, listeners. It's not grave robbing. It is like sushi. So... <laughs> So he gets the, the body parts, and then he sort of puts them together with seaweed and white rice. As, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Except this corpse sushi winds up looking like this. Uh, Victor makes his creation tall with long, dark hair, handsome features, and great strength. And one night, he brings it to life, and he's not super into this rough draft. Victor is kind of horrified by what he's done, and so he goes and has has a quick catnap to deal with the stress and like so many parents wakes up with his new baby standing over him with a creepy smile victor understandably freaks out and runs out into the street abandoning his creation parenting <laughs> parenting 101 brought to you by victor frankenstein fortunately victor's childhood pal henry finds him and takes him back home vic begins to think that this may have all been a bad dream he's not to blame who hasn't messed around with a dead body you get the gist He's feverish and sick, and Henry brings him back to full health. Bad news, folks. Victor's little brother, William, has been found dead. Strangled dead. Violently. Relatable. Really? When your little brother is, anyway. It's, yeah. Can't be related to anything that Victor's done, ever, but, um... No, it's, a, it's an unfortunate accident. Victor is innocent. Yeah, clearly, he's never done a wrong thing in his life. Victor and Henry head back to Victor's dad's house to pay their respects, but on the way are hero question mark sees his creation in the woods staring like a weirdo while home victor goes for a short vacation in the alps and on a hike in the mountains he runs into the creature slash the monster the creature proceeds to explain that he didn't ask to be born he learned how to speak and be civil by running into the woods and then watching a very nice swiss french family before they saw him got scared and ran away He'd like a wife, please. Can Victor make that happen? Yeah, no. That's just like, you know, it's like, hey, you know, obviously you got some manufacturing capacities here, you know. Made to order bride. Yeah. And you gotta, uh, you gotta, yeah. What's, what's his type? Well, I'm about to get into that. Uh, thank you for asking, though. But also he does fess up to the fact that he did murder William, and he is sorry about that. He was just mad. I feel like... <laughs> You do that, and you're asking a favor. You gotta be able to, like, compliment sandwich it some way. A little bit. There's gotta be, 
tact, I guess is what I'm saying, is really lacking yeah. here. Oh, yeah, I know. The creature's charisma score is not rolling no. natural yeah. 20s. He's, he's honestly feedback for the creature. Yes, um, because his uh, request very much goes, wife, please, followed by, I killed your brother. But wife, please, um, it's a wife sandwich. Um, but... The creature also asks Victor, so this is the type of wife that the creature would enjoy. He asks Victor to make her just as gnarly as him, so she has no other option than to be with him. Aw. Yikes. <laughs> Man. <laughs> you know, you, you hope there's someone out there for everyone. <laughs> and, I, and I guess sometimes you just go to your, your dad that made you real goofy looking and you say, can you make me... A wife, please. <laughs> anyway, uh, Victor's not thrilled about this, but the creature is also threatened to make his life hell and do the murder thing on his friends and family if he does not make a Mrs. Creature. So Victor agrees. The pride of Frankenstein. If you will. <laughs> so, so that being said, I like that. That was nice. Huh. So Victor, under threat of having his life torn to shreds, agrees and proceeds to head to Scotland and start his work. And you know the name of the game, folks? Graveyards, charnel houses, you get it. Um, you know, same old, same old. Uh, one night while Victor's working on this new Mrs. Creature, he looks out the window to see Mr. Creature has followed him all the way to Scotland and is staring in the window at him grinning. This, um, this causes Victor to lose his nerve, understandably. And he decides he really doesn't want to make Mrs. Creature, and he destroys what he's built of her so far. He then marries his hot adopted sister slash fiance, Elizabeth, and tells the creature, No, I'm sorry, this isn't... No bride for you. No bride for you, no bride for you, ever. <laughs> and understandably, Victor's baby throws a tantrum and declares, I will be with you on your wedding night. Oh my. And it's, like I said, it's two—it's a book about two men chasing each other in the Arctic. Yeah, well, and now there's like a stepmom energy where you're... Yeah, yeah exactly. Which is like not her fault. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, somehow. Well, and somehow. And our boy Victor, he's smart enough to reanimate things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him the saltiest french fry in a Happy Meal. Because our boy Victor takes this as a threat against him personally and then plans ahead. See, here's what he's going to do. He's going to put Elizabeth in a different spot, and then he's going to wait for a period of time with his buddy Henry to see if his kid shows up. Once the coast is clear, then he'll head over to Elizabeth. Make sense? No. That's fine. <laughs> it's not a great... No, all right. No. Yeah, well, I mean, smart, right? Wrong. Um, the creature goes and strangles Victor's new bride. Not great. Man, his cousin was so furry. Hot adopted sister. His hot adopted sister. Yeah. Was. Yeah. So it's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there's no blood there. Well, I mean, after the creature, then. Well, there's blood. Anyway. Actually, now it's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a mess. It's just a mess. Victor decides at this point the best defense is a good offense and begins to chase the creature. Somehow this works. He follows the creature to the Arctic, almost catching him before the storm we mentioned earlier separates them. And now he's on Walton's ship. The end? No. Uh -huh. Frankenstein, the scientist, dies. Walton is pretty torn up about this. He only just met the guy, but he was he's a good buddy. He's just really sad, and now he has to deal with the, the rest of the schmucks on his ship, you know? But a few days later, he checks on the body of Frankenstein, and boy howdy, there's a super tall dude with long dark hair crying by the corpse of Frankenstein. Walton has a, wait, you're real moment? And the creature confirms the, <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> he turns into Scooby-Doo. <laughs> and then he takes the mask off of the creature, and it turns out that it was just the groundskeeper, Helen Walls. You figured it out. Yeah. This book is twist after twist. It really is. So Frankenstein Jr. bids adieu and flees into the Arctic, maybe to cease to exist, or perhaps maybe to haunt another irresponsible parent. Regardless, this story has a lot of dad went out for cigarettes energy, but with consequences. And... 
now, uh, let's talk yeah. a little bit about... Let's uh, rap, yo. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's talk about Mary Shelley and um, get some thoughts from the wonderful host uh, yeah. of the Booker Fight. Yeah, well, boy, there are going to be several parallels to Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, <laughs> Future episode, uh, folks. Yes. For one thing, I'm kind of like, so I'm going to guess, because Bride of Frankenstein is the classic movie. I would I would say that, I, like, you, you identify them by the studio. Universal Monsters? I think so, yeah. Universal is the classic Universal Monster, mm-hmm. hopefully. Unless I'm wrong, in which case, whatever, I've been wrong before. Mm-hmm. The point is, I'm guessing that is the story, though, of the Universal Monsters movie, Bride of Frankenstein, is that he goes back to the creator and says, you got to make me... Up a bride, and that one it happens. And yeah, in the movie, it posits, okay, well, what if Frankenstein actually, you know, accomplished this? And if I, I haven't seen Bride of Frankenstein, but if I spoiler alert for like a an eighty something year old <laughs> movie, apologies. But um, if I recall, the ending to Bride of Frankenstein is that he does animate her; she becomes sentient, sees who she's supposed to spend the rest of her life with, and then she burns the lab down because she's like, I am not about this. I do, I do not want to do this. So. You look like Boris Karloff. Yeah. But you were saying that the original movie, that I mean, well, or like the image that we have of Frankenstein, having not seen the original movie. Um. So you mean the book, my dear? Having not read the book or seen the movie, but my understanding is the movie, they end up chasing him out of town with pitchforks and torches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's... which is not what happens in this. No, and... it remains secret. He remains. He could be out there even to this day. Yeah, I don't know. You see this in. I'm not going to try and turn this into a, a a horror episode, but this is a beautiful bridge in plot between horror and science fiction. And while this is not the first science fiction novel to exist, it's definitely one of the earliest ones. And so, when it comes to horror, and you think about things like the cold. There's this fear of, like, preservation. If something is cold or iced down, like take um, in Kubrick's The Shining, um, Jack Torrance freezing to death, presumably in the maze, there is kind of a fear of, like, is he actually dead or does he just need to be thawed out? Well, and the monster getting away at the end is in a lot of, like, like yeah. most horror movies, the monster gets away at the end. Exactly, yeah. And so I think what's really incredible about Shelley's work is that you see this ripple effect throughout science fiction, throughout horror, throughout literature itself with this story, because one could argue that, um, you know, without Frankenstein, the novel, you you don't get the mad scientist trope. You don't get things like, you know, Jeff Goldblum uh, asking, <laughs> you didn't think, you only wanted to know if you could, you didn't stop to think if you should in Jurassic Park. You know, in some cases, do you get you know, the final iteration of The Thing um, by John Carpenter, where it's like, here's this frozen horror that is discovered by explorers. Did you did you go a little bit too far? So anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. As you say, like this is coming out of horror. Horror has been around longer than science fiction Mm -hmm. and probably like getting to like go into that fantastical realm or whatever. Who knows what all of these tropes existed beforehand, how much, you know, like we're not going to read the entire, you know, everything that's ever been written to actually be able to answer these questions or whatever. But it's sort of fun when you're talking about the foundations of science fiction as a genre, which Frankenstein is unmistakably one of the foundations of science fiction as a genre. And one of the fun things is that we get to, like, follow where these tropes come from and, you know, where they, I guess, not necessarily originating from. But, mm-hmm. yeah, like, we get to be like, oh, look at that. It's it's a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, scientists much before this time were not what we would even really think of as scientists and sure. or, you know, whatever. Well, they were working with the information they had at the time and... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which uh, is, you know, difficult to, to do in, like, the 1700s, 1800s. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at what point in history, I think it's pretty recently that, like, your chances of survival did not go down when you went to see the doctor. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, anesthesia back then was like, okay, better get a rip-snort drunk, um, you know, before you saw the leg off. And I think what's really interesting, though, that you can see in especially uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is you see sort of these like almost grasping the concepts of things that we would see in the future down the road. Um, Shelley uses galvanism, which was created by Galvini. And that's essentially if you um, shock material enough, it wiggles and 
So that yeah, was kind of... Because the things that make our muscles move are electrical signals being sent from our brain. Yeah. And the muscles do not discriminate where the electrical signals are coming from. Exactly. And granted, I will say that I was, I went to school for a degree in English literature and a minor in writing. So I, I can talk about literature. Don't necessarily quote me on the science aspect of it. But to my understanding, okay, you couldn't necessarily make a monster the same way that um, Victor Frankenstein makes his monster. But, you know, if you think about the fact that we use charges to, you know, um, restart hearts, you know, there are aspects of like organ donation after, you know, someone has passed um, a heart or uh, a liver, you know, that organ might still be good and that can go into a living person and perpetuate that life. So Well, and they have, they can grow an ear on the back of a mouse and then attach it to a person. So yeah. it's just a matter of actually kickstarting the drive is not a thing we can currently do. You know, if it's ever done, it will probably not be done in the way that it's done in Frankenstein. God, I hope not. <laughs> so messy and stinky, too. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I mean, well, so the monster does not decompose, even when he's in temperate regions. No, yeah. He, yeah. he, uh, he seems to be this immortal signifier of guilt and uh, reminding Frankenstein Sr. of his responsibilities, because there is a theme here of... Themes indeed. Obviously, you know, what if you could bring a loved one back from the dead? Or what if you could stop loved ones around you from passing away? And Mary Shelley throughout her life dealt with death so regularly. Her mother passed uh, giving birth to her and it was always on her mind. Um, She often lost uh, children through miscarriages or they, they died young and her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, unfortunately died in a in a shipwreck, I believe, crossing the English Channel when he was fairly young himself and he was a great love of her life. And so Shelley was often just plagued with this theme of death and, you know, had a nightmare, I think, after one of her children passed away where she wrote to a friend and, and she dreamed that she was like sitting with her baby on the floor and that the baby had just kind of come back to life. So that's kind of a major theme. Like, what if you can stop death? And then, you know, obviously the element of like, but should Sometimes death is better. Sometimes death is better. Yeah, see, there you go. There is an element of, as well, of child abandonment. And I'm not going to say that Victor Frankenstein is an exact cookie cutter representation of Lord Byron. <laughs> but Cassie, who is Lord Byron? Okay, um, so kind of giving just a, a very broad overview. Lord Byron is an interesting cat. He was a renowned poet and writer of his era, and he was basically the son of like some failed nobility. So he, you know, for a time lived in a kind of crumbling manner in England until he was chased out for having some bisexual proclivities at the time. Yeah, you could get chased out of town. Britain, England, you know, Europe, they're all very progressive. You know, they look down. Anyway, but <laughs> anyway, yeah. whatever. Fair. I mean, it was hundreds of years ago at this point or whatever. But still, they're dirty Europeans. That's what I'm saying. It's a hot take from all ends. You're dirty. Anyway. <laughs> so during this time, and I promise I'm going to get to the point, Byron flees to the main continent of Europe. Well, he gets established with sort of a new lover um, over there and winds up having Marion Percy Shelley over during the spring. And during that spring, it was an incredibly cold, rainy, terrible spring. And so everyone was basically trapped inside Lord Byron's Swiss house. And Byron, one evening, is like, well, you know, let's let's all tell each other ghost stories. It'll be something to pass the time. And so he and Percy start chatting back and forth about it. And at one point, they're like, Mary, what do you got? And Mary's like, oh, I don't know. Eventually, Mary has a nightmare where um, she sees, like, some young scientist with a corpse upon a slab. And through some incredible machinations, the corpse begins to move. And so she pens a short story real quick that basically covers Frankenstein, shows it to Percy. Percy is like, this is excellent. You need to make this so much longer. And eventually a longer version of that becomes Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Here's where Lord Byron comes in. 
During this time, Lord Byron fathers a daughter with his uh, lover, um, and the daughter's name is Allegra. He then kicks his lover out of the house, but he's like, I'm keeping my daughter here. But he isn't a very good father figure to his daughter. He basically just kind of sees her as like a plaything and gets bored pretty easy, even though her mother is writing to him saying, hey, can you please, you know, I want to see my kid, you know, send, send her to me. And Byron basically dumps Allegra into an orphanage and doesn't visit her. And I believe Percy Shelley is the only one who makes regular calls to Allegra, who then passes away very young, and it's very sad. The reason I'm drawing this parallel, this long-winded parallel between um, Frankenstein and Byron, is that they tell you to write what you know. And so if you're trapped all summer with Lord Byron and you need inspiration for a protagonist who takes things very literally gets an idea stuck in his head and doesn't let it go, no matter how many people tell him, hey, it's not a good idea, maybe don't do that, and then proceeds to abandon his child first chance he gets because he's just not feeling the vibe. I'm not saying that it is Lord Byron, but I'm not saying that it isn't. Well, and I think that it isn't necessarily not, but I think also that was not the most uncommon type. Percy Shelley had also abandoned a family to run off with, with Mary. <laughs> and it's even possible, and I say this without uh, research, but I submit to you that it is possible that there were even more than those two men in all of history who had abandoned their families. Genuinely? It seems improbable. And yet. I'm aghast. And yet. It may have happened on even a third occasion. Absolutely, that's a major theme of the story. You sort of joke about how he's, you know, the hero of the story because he's not a hero, because he's the protagonist. But the central tragedy of the story is him wanting something to make a Frankenstein, mm -hmm. to make a monster, mm -hmm. and then getting exactly what he wanted and immediately not being able to muster the consequences of his own actions mm -hmm. and his attempts to evade the consequences of his own actions make things worse and worse and continuously worse and ultimately result in his death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a coherent story arc. Mm -hmm. yeah. See, this is why clear and consistent manifestation is very important, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only Victor Frankenstein had known about the secret <laughs> and uh, maybe, like, got a jade egg. Yeah. Uh, just sort of... Yeah, if, if only Goop had been around. What a different world uh, yeah. this story would have taken. Exactly. It would have all been... It would have been like he would have created the monster. I'd be like, have some, have some of this, like, rehydrating cream. I think this yeah. would be good for your skin. He's beautiful now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets along great. They have an orgy. <laughs> Now, see, that's Lord Byron's version. That's, Lord, that's, that's the Byron cut. Have some lotion and now never I'll have it again. <laughs> the Byron cut. Um, yeah, no, I think just what's really interesting about this book is we were talking earlier about themes in the book, but then also like how this book goes on to inspire other science fiction and other sci-fi horror tropes and, and uh, content, different movies and books and whatnot. The other thing to kind of keep in mind is that at this time, it's also sort of this interesting like milieu of writers and thinkers that are sort of inspiring each other. Because fun fact, not daughter Allegra, um, who dies in an orphanage, but Byron's first daughter is Ada Lovelace. Lab assistant to Charles Babbage, who designed something that he called the difference engine, but it was just effectively a computer. And she helped him with that and was the first one to be programming it. So she's the first computer programmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace. And incidentally, computers in several ways led to more science fiction. Exactly. So, so it's yeah. probably one could put it under the umbrella of coincidence, but it's a very interesting coincidence that the man who posited to a room of writers, hey, let's all tell each other ghost stories, this inspires one of the, the earliest known sci-fi horror novels. That man is also the father of probably the daughter of computer engineering. And I don't know. I just think that that's really fascinating, even if it is coincidental. So it's all connected. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. Just well, <laughs> and just that it's also it was just sort of an interesting intellectual scene. 
you know, and uh, and without a doubt, yeah, it probably actually was a reasonably cool room to hang out in. Yeah, <laughs> I believe it. Were there any other uh, points that we wanted to hit, do you think? I think that was pretty good. Yeah. All right. Good to be here on the book report. Today I'm joined by special guest Cassie Rude, my girlfriend, freelance writer extraordinaire. Yes, that's me. Karate champion. Oh gosh, I, I only ever got to purple belt. I don't think you can. Killed eight men with one finger on the way here today. Yeah. Don't you listen to her. I mean, we don't know what happened to those guys. Thank yeah. You. Listen, we have an alibi. Where were you? <laughs> You're doing wonderful. <laughs> so, Listener, maybe you did it, and you're trying to frame us. Okay. So, what are we reading today? In 1864, French writer Jules Verne wrote Voyage au Centre de la Terre, known in English as Journey to the Center of the Earth. I swear your jaw just unhinged <laughs> a little bit. Well, I am French. I like to eat croissants. Oh my gosh, I'm in, I'm very intimidated right now. The story begins in... Oh, wait, no, that's not how that works. Um, but he's talking about German people, so... Okay. He has... I think he has opinions about German people. Because we did Frankenstein last time, this time I wanted to switch it up by reading an early science fiction book centered around an eccentric German scientist and somewhat abusive father figure who makes a world-changing discovery and travels to the Arctic. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Professor Otto Liedenbrock is such a man. Our story begins in Liedenbrock's house in Hamburg. The professor barges in in the middle of the day. He has a few rushed words of conversation with his nephew, our narrator, Axel, and then runs out <laughs> to examine a document he's found. Yeah, Axel. Last name Rose. He's, they're German. He's Axel. The wheels on the Axel go round and round. Yeah, Axel Rose. Oh my God, actually. Axl Rose is also kind of a punk ass, and this character is a punk ass. So now he is Axl Rose. You're picturing him in a bandana, not my bandana, the different <laughs> bandana. You're picturing Axel. The character of Axel is Axl Rose in the video where he sees a guy with a camcorder and he jumps into the crowd to try to take the camcorder from the guy, and the guy kicks the shit out of him and he gets back on stage and storms off angrily because Axl Rose. Uh, same guy as Paradise City, right? Yeah. Okay, so take me down to the city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the caves are drippy. <laughs> oh, won't you please take me down? <laughs> Noah and I are available for higher ed events. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll sing. We'll fucking like hold it down. But just those two lines. Just the just like a, a version of Paradise City, but written to be about journey to the center of the earth. Just like pop rocky songs, but about old science fiction books. It's like a weird owl. It's like a more niche weird owl. You can't be giving away these million dollar ideas. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Let's see. So, uh, the other members of the professor's household are a cook named Martha and Grauben. Grauben. Yeah, it's the worst <laughs> name. Feedback for German people. Your hey. names are bad. Hey. You don't have a German name. You can't even. Okay. Well, rude. Which is, no. I mean, like, as far as names go. No, that. Okay. Oh, but that's something else. That's Norwegian. Norwegian. Yeah. Okay, well, we're getting there. It's just an insult. <laughs> uh, Grauben is Axel's romantic interest and somewhat ambiguously related to him, making Journey to the Center of the Earth a precursor not only to modern science fiction, but to certain step-sibling narratives popular in modern short video formats. <laughs> this is where it comes from. This is where this is where that comes from. Although that also is apparently a thing in Frankenstein. Yeah. So hot, hot, uh, hot adopt, and presumably from older. So you know, for as much as the step sibling porn is like a punchline that we like use to illustrate the whatever, or like I think it's I think it's it's a shorthand for the degradation of modern society or whatever. But we've been like that for a while. Humans are like that. That's how humans are. 
The professor is going to fast until he deciphers this document he's found, and that means all the other members of his household are going to fast as well. It is unclear how exactly Liedenbrock prevents the cook from eating, but that appears to be what happens. This has some strong moms on a diet, so everyone else in the house is on a diet kind of vibe. He's, he's just like literally fucking starving people. Because he's like, I don't want to eat until I, I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's super positive. This is, yeah. It's a healthy environment. It's a healthy, you just want to have a guardian like Otto Liedenbrock. Yeah, clearly. The book gives us this cipher. Um, it's like a runic manuscript thing and slowly drips out the clues as to how it's to be solved. I'm certain that it's intended to be a challenge to the reader, but I'm so happy I didn't even try. Because as we learn, when Axel translates the document first, it's backwards and in Latin. And it just says, welcome to the jungle. We've got fun and games. Yes, exactly. Um, actually, what it says is, Descend, bold traveler, into the crater of the Yokel of Sneffels, which the shadow of Scartaris touches before the Kalends of July, and you will attain the center of the earth, which I have done. Ark Arnsak Newsom. Arnsak Newsom is the good name of the guy. That's like his signature. I feel like that wasn't clear from the way that I parsed that sentence, but that's... What Arnsak Newsom, that's what that collection of syllables is. That's a person's name. Axel, it turns out, has a Luke Skywalker level of whininess as his defining character trait for most of the story. Um, and because of this, he is afraid his uncle will want to go to the center of the earth. I guess he is right about that. But he keeps this thing that he's translated secret uh, from his uncle. It's not until his uncle is getting ready to leave the house, I like to think to get lunch. Uh, <laughs> Everyone else is just <laughs> hungry at home. And he's like, okay, I, I go down the street and I will go have some, some kartoffeln. It's okay. mixed karsait. That's going to be wonderful. I need to get my strength up if I'm going to translate this later. Exactly. Otherwise, my my wrist will not work. <laughs> I need to keep my wrist strong so I can hold the pen. Uh, you know, you need a potassium. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, It's not until his uncle is getting ready to leave the house and starve the household even longer that Axel caves and reveals the secret. What a wuss. I'm sorry. This is, that wasn't even like a couple hours. Like, like, anyway. Yeah, well, no, it, it's, it's, like, it's like a couple of days in, in the book that he's like starving his family. It's, um, yeah. Okay, no wonder Axel... Cool and good. Cool and good. No wonder yeah. Axel didn't have his head on straight with that. You know, he, I can't think very well when I'm really hungry. Like No. Yeah, that's probably what it is. You need to have a Snickers, Axel. Yes. Oh, no. Okay. So he's, like, being irritable. And then the professor just goes, like, you're not you when you're hungry. He gives him the Snickers, and he turns from being Axel Rose back into being the German Ax boy. Axel child. Axel child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's still Axel Rose in spirit. Hold that image in your, in your minds, listeners. Axel goes to Grauben to complain about his free trip to Iceland that he's getting to go on, and uh, Grauben, being a reasonable person, points out that it's actually a cool opportunity and one that she'd love to be a part of, but she can't go because she's a girl, and the last thing you need in the middle of a speleological expedition is cooties. I didn't know Grauben was a girl. Oh, Grauben is Axel's romantic interest. Did you think it was significantly more progressive than... Yeah, Grauben is not, like, what you think of as being a woman's name, for sure. Well, it's, uh, it sounded very much like a surname, and I was about to, like, dive in with the fact that, like, Jules Verne was a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe and, like, wrote him fan letters and stuff, that Poe was like, what? <laughs> Anyways. Journey to the Center of the Earth inspired a lot of what came after it in science fiction, but in turn, it also is inspired by much of what came before. The voyage to and through Iceland highlights this well. Vern name-checks Hamlet from Shakespeare as well as Lilliput from Gulliver's Travelers. Moreover, the form of the story has a structure very familiar to a lot of older adventure stories. Axel and his uncle arrive in Iceland and spend some time traveling. The book provides a sort of ethnographic description about what sorts of Scandinavian people are virtuous and which are uncouth peasants. Um, obviously, modern science has revealed that they're all savages, but hey. um, they contract us... <laughs> They contract a stoic local guide named Hans and climb the mountain. At the top, they find a lava tube that plunges into the ground. Oh. Uh, this trio is bringing a huge amount of equipment. Months of preserved food, climbing equipment, scientific equipment, guns and lanterns, and a water skin containing enough water for all of them for six days. And if we guess that they're drinking two liters of water a day, and that's super low considering the amount of exertion they're doing, that comes out to 80 pounds of water. Great on top of all that other equipment and their hiking big mileage days straight into the ground. 
10, 15 miles a day. I don't remember the exact mileages and I forgot to take a note of it, but it's like the the set of things that they're physically able to do is does not feel realistic to how human bodies function. And they must have a, uh, a special item on them that, you know, increases their carrying capacity. I think that there is some um, power scaling to the other adventure stories that were done at the time, because I'm sure that there are loads of other stories where you know a character has to go without food for six days throughout the wilderness or whatever as the temperature remains pleasant the professor remarks i guess this disproves the hot center of the earth theory and yeah that would do that but like we're still pretty sure today that the center of the earth is hot like i'm not personally a scientist but really the more that they like go down into this the more that it's like obviously it's not the way that the cavern that he goes into because they're hiking for over a month and that is not a thing that exists in the real world and a lot of the things that they're going to see are well you'll see they're just uh not things you would find immediately plausible having modern scientific knowledge so if you were to crack open the earth like a kinder egg surprise it would be very bad for the economy agreed yeah (laughs) but like okay but at this time because i was like they don't even have plate tectonics I was like, okay, clearly they did not know plate tectonics was a thing. Just like reading like the way that he describes the inside of the earth going. It's a thing that I've known my entire life, but apparently it became like an established theory in 1967, like very recently. And people have been walking around on the earth since like at least the 40s. Very true. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Wow, that's some, I didn't know it was that recent. I guess I'd be curious um, when the theory of like, supercontinent Pangea came into effect because, and granted, early forms of paleontology and looking at, you know, the geology of the Earth and how things have shifted. Like, if you're an early naturalist or you're interested in this kind of stuff, you only know what you know, and sometimes that's informed by myth and legend. There was some uh, Grecian guy that happened across a the skeleton of a, a woolly mammoth, and because of the way a woolly mammoth skull is shaped, where it's got a large hole in the center of it that for some muscles to attach to the trunk for, yeah for the trunk um but for this guy he saw that hole and he's like that's a cyclops and it's clearly a, cy- a cyclops you know i've seen an elephant skull you're, you're, kind of... yeah no and it's just like it's super easy to dunk on people in the past um i think it's it's a matter of like dunk on people for not being nice people um but if someone right. If someone well, doesn't have the tools and technology of their era to, to understand, then, you know, they're, they're spitballing. And at any rate, if I was going to, like, really be a dick about all the stuff he, would, he got wrong, I would have so much onus to, like, do good research to have, like, accurate information. There's a lot of stuff that happens. At one point, Axel gets separated from the Professor and Hans, and there's, like, an echo in the cavern. There's like a weird acoustic thing that they're able to hear each other from a great distance away. And basically, across the way, he hears... Oh, sweet child. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's, so Axel is, is just crooning out. He's just going... <laughs> and his, you know, people are very attracted to this, obviously, and his sort of the movements of his hips as he's doing it. What he says to Hans is, I long to see you in November rain. <laughs> Is that right? Is that correct? I'm not sure. I have, I've only got like the first parts of Guns and Roses. <laughs> I mentioned they were walking with six days of water. Mm-hmm. They walk six days straight down, and then to everyone's surprise, they run out of water. I'm shocked. I know. Who'd have thunk it? And after walking for a couple of days with no water at all, the thing is, like, at this point, Axel's whininess, I'm, like, on his side. Like, he is almost as upset about his certain impending death as he was about his free trip to Iceland. This guy's just a downer. He, yeah. has, he has no fun or sense of adventure. He has no fun. He has no sense of adventure. Although, in this moment, I kind of see where he's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> because they're underground for, like, a month and a half or something. That happens. He gets separated from the group. Uh, they do eventually find water. There's a bunch of, like, they have to, like, go over caverns, and Hans is always heroically rescuing the cargo, but they're losing a few things at a time, every like, constantly throughout the story. At this stage, I see where Axel is coming from. But here's the thing. 
because eventually they come to a huge underground cave, including an underground sea and a chemical reaction of some kind in the top of the chamber. They create an aurora-like light in the cavern. Oh, wow. And on the beach in this cavern, they find forests and the remains of extinct animals. They're finding woolly mammoth bones. They think they're cyclopses, but it turns out they're woolly mammoths. They immediately identify them as woolly mammoths because these are the learned, great, and good. I don't think I mentioned this, but uh, these two characters, the professor is a professor of earth sciences. I mean, I don't remember the exact term that they use for it. Stuff. Old stuff. Yeah. The thing that makes them sort of super heroic in the story, the thing that makes them be able to do these sort of superhuman feats, it's interesting because it is a, a dedication to science. Science is postulated as being an intrinsic good in the moral universe of this story. And the thing that's really fun about that is that while it, they're saying science, they really are treating these characters so much like you would see a, a king in a, in a heroic epic who is virtuous because he has been given the divine right of kings, and it's because God said so. And at a certain extent, it's like, they're not really behaving very scientifically. They're just sort of like... It's kind of deified. It's deified in this story. It is the powerful good of the world of the story. Like, this is another thing that is another story that is considered to be one of the origins of science fiction. And I really like that it sort of has, not explicitly, but implicitly, science has a moral imperative to it in the story that I really like because it is a, a science fiction story and I, and I really like that that's present and I find that very interesting. Okay, so what sick guitar riff happens next with, um, with Axel? Well, Axel doesn't play guitar, Axel just sings. Uh, yeah. They didn't bring Slash. Hans could be Slash. They don't specify whether or not Hans is wearing a top hat at any point in the story. What year does this come out? 1864. Okay, well, you know, that was... Right before the Civil War ended, depending on how the Germans felt about uh, Abe Lincoln, top hats were, were, were a thing, so... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Hans is... Uh, is German, yeah. Well, Hans is... Where, where are they? Norwegian. Hans is... No, he's not Norwegian. Yeah, uh, he's from... Icelandic. Icelandic? Okay. Hans is Icelandic. He's uh, he's an Icelandic eider duck hunter, which I guess is a kind of duck. Shout out all uh, Icelandic uh, eider duck hunters. Yeah. Shoot some ducks. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so um, what happens next now that they've found this, this big light and extinct animals and forests? So while on the beach, they find forests and remains of extinct animals. Uh, eventually, they also find living animals, human bones. Uh, Leidenbrock breaks out his phrenology skills and is able to declare the skull to be from a white guy, so don't worry, it's a safe neighborhood. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Jules, no. <laughs> Why? I mean, it's also like phrenology is a thing that they thought was a real science at this time. Like, everyone thought that it, like, I mean, admittedly motivated reasoning. Like, none of these people were not racist. It, which is another nice thing, that there's, like, a travel story any kind of travel story from this time where the characters are going to darkest Africa, there's going to be some stuff that you're going to be uncomfortable reading. Mm -hmm. yeah, you can make fun of Norwegian people, you know, Icelandic people. Yeah. You can make fun of Scandinavians. Yeah, yeah. They, like, frankly, I don't know, they seem like they're doing fine. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they later spot a living human uh, walking around with a spear, and they, like, make eye contact with him, and then they just move on with what they were doing, yeah, like, because, like, they're scientists. They're not going to, like, look into that. Seems like a missed opportunity. It seems a little bit like a missed opportunity, because instead they build a raft and set out onto this underground sea with no plan. It should be noted. No plan. No, no plan. Well... There's the water that's in the sea, and they, 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 you know, okay. And it turns out, remember I mentioned there's a big chemical reaction happening in the room? Oh, no, what? It sets off some kind of uh, electrical event, a storm, basically, and they're having, like, balls of lightning thrown at them. All the, all the metal objects on the ship are getting magnetized, silly stuff like that. And they get back to shore, and then they get shot out of a geyser. And, okay. <laughs> They're in Italy now. <laughs> they are sex machina geyser. 
they're out now. Like that was the journey. They went to the center of the earth. And they just shot up like a like a, a champagne cork. <laughs> <laughs> they're out now. And then there's an epilogue. You know, the professor is recognized as being the greatest scientific mind of his generation, and so on and so forth. And that's the tale. Journey to the center of the earth. But my God, I think about this. A few other things I wanted to just like get in here. Mm-hmm. Professor Liedenbrock has a speech impediment, which I thought was interesting that Vern took the time to write him with a speech impediment. Hmm. I have this idea of it where you're like a dorky kid with a speech impediment and you're reading a book and you're seeing a heroic character who's like you and you're feeling good about that. And this obviously is a book where even the skull needs to be a white guy. They were not. Vern was not thinking representation matters, but there is still an element of representation matters. And I think that that is another thing that, especially as time goes on, is going to become really huge in science fiction. And I feel like it's at some level present here. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's an early form of it, um, to be sure, but it's there. And, you know, that while it's not perfect, it does help create that scaffold for what eventually becomes, you know, uh, shows like Star Trek and things like that. Absolutely. Jules Verne was bitter. Well, I don't know if he was bitter, but he, towards the end of his life, he would say, oh, I was never accepted as literature. It was a thing that he rejected, and it's a thing that a lot of science fiction authors since have, like, you know, felt that they don't get the respect that they deserve. Not unreasonably so. In the case of Verne, I think that his book is so much in the form of an adventure book in the style that kids would read at that time that, like, even if it hadn't have been science fiction, I don't think that it would be considered to be literature. Necessarily, I don't know, I don't know exactly where that they were drawing the lines around that at that time, but it is a kid's adventure book. A few very wealthy people were able to travel around the world and have vacations in the 1860s. But for a normal person of the sort of person who would be reading these books, we're talking about European boys who are growing up in the world trying to think what they want to do with their lives. And I think the main way that you can go see the world is as a colonial officer doing, you know, crimes for your government. It's true, true. And in 1864, this book came out. It's a French book. In 1862, two years before this happened, France had begun a colony in Cambodia. Okay. In a colonization effort that would escalate and change over the years to become the Vietnam War. And that might come up in a future book report. Oh, are we getting back into the theme of, you know, things inspire things? No, I'm just teasing a future book report. But you're saying, Noah, surely a science fiction story that's related to Vietnam... That's such an interesting thing that you've, like, sort of put out in the ether, but not really. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. my conspiracy theory hat is just connecting the dots, which says that journey to the center of the earth is responsible for the Vietnam War. That is what happened, historically. I guess really what I'm saying is I believe, I feel like there's a high degree of confidence that some of those early... And they are children. The people who go off to war, irrespective of the conflict, are children. And I bet you that when the French-Indochina conflict was initially getting steam, I feel absolutely certain that there were early printed copies of Journey to the Center of the Earth traveling in the bags of the children who were going to fight in that war. That is poignant and sad and very deep. And a conflict that would go in one form or another for another 100 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wow. So, dang. Uh, so I'm realizing something, and as a child of the 90s, one of uh, my favorite movies that I enjoyed growing up was this animated movie called Atlantis. And I'm learning now, post this synopsis, that Atlantis stole a heck of a lot, plot-wise, from Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's a standard adventure plot. Yeah, and that's, you know, it was marketed to to kids, and, you know, and it is this measure of, like, okay, what if you go deep, deep down and you start to, you know, find things like, you know, uh, creatures that haven't been discovered yet or that were thought to be long extinct? What if you find the remains of people and ancient civilizations? And then what if you find people existing down there and what is the correct thing to do if you're claiming to be a person of science and honestly i think it's interesting that the scientists in this book they see a fellow human and they're like peace 
good. And then they just geyser out and, and they're gone, you know? And so many different societies and cultures that humans have, like there's a version of that story where things go very, very wrong for the humans that are living in the center of the earth. Well, not to get too. Or there's a sequel where things go very wrong for the humans living in the center. Journey to the center of the earth, round two, electric boogaloo. Or, I mean, who knows? Maybe they just like one of them had a little bit of you know fucking smallpox on issue or something, and they're offering any. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I don't know. Okay. Vis is currently dying from having been drawn and quartered as a punishment uh, for a traffic infraction, is my understanding. How on earth he's able to, like, work on the podcast while separating, like, you know, various... It's admirable stuff. Yeah, this this man is dedicated to making this happen. So, listeners, take that as a note. Please be grateful and be thankful that a drawn and quartered Reese is bringing this to you as often as possible. Yes, but he'll probably be better by the time you see him. He's fully... <laughs> he'll, be, he'll, have gotten, he'll have gotten himself together. See, he knows this great doctor named Frankenstein. Real good. <laughs> Tall, long hair. <gasps> oh, fuck. Oh, no. Oh, shit. <laughs> and now he knows that we know. <laughs> see you in the Arctic Greece. <laughs> Thanks, you two. I can't wait to hear what you cover in the future. By the by, that doctor you recommended worked out just fine. Except I now have this innate fear of fire in large groups of people for some reason. Stay tuned to the book report, folks. You're in for a wild ride throughout the ages as Noah, Cassie, and guests read through the most iconic, eclectic, and rare works of science fiction literature. Until we meet again, this has been Reese Hendrick for Noah Linsk and the Book Report, reminding you to pick up a book and explore the world within.